I'm joined today by William Sitwell, food and travel writer, restaurant critic, broadcaster and master chef critic. In addition to writing many books, he founded the smallest wine store in the world. Good morning, William. Thank you for joining me today. How are you feeling? I'm fine, thank you. Nice to see you, Anisha. You too. So, as you know, my, my podcast is called The Naughty Bites. What's your naughty pleasure? Um, I don't like to think of any food as naughty. Okay. I think overconsumption of one specific food is naughty or foolish <laughs> and stupid and ruins it. But it's a bit like, you know, when you get a favourite song and you listen to it until you hate it. Mm. Um, if you do that to a particular food, you sort of lose its excitement. So yeah. I don't eat self-sourcing chocolate fondants every day. <laughs> I don't eat cashews all day. I don't eat pistachios all day long. I don't eat, drink champagne relentlessly or eat pork scratchings and <laughs> pints of Exmoor gold ale. But those are things that I find pleasurable. There's too many things that I really love um, to really sort of identify one. I suppose probably, I think the ultimate naughty pudding has to be a, has to be a chocolate fondant, you know, when it's made beautifully. When you slice through it, and it's gooey and hot and oozing, delicious, rich chocolate sauce when it's made beautifully. And a little spoonful of good vanilla ice cream pops on the top, so it just melts into it. Oh, um, I'm so hungry. <laughs> uh, of all those things, I'll probably say that my naughty, my most naughty pleasure is probably a it's chocolate fondant. Oh, I love that. As soon as you were talking about pistachios and cashews, yeah, I have some every night, just a little bit, like. Because I'm so addicted to them, and just a little bit with salt, it's so good. No, so, no, yeah. Aren't they? And oh, yeah, you know, I think they're they're very nutritious and healthy, aren't they? Do you know? Yes. I always yeah, they are. The, the, also, <laughs> the important thing is about cashew nuts is to make sure that they're at the opposite end of the room, so you have yeah. to take exercise each time you go and grab a bottle. <laughs> I like that. So, like so therefore, that. you're a bit more virtuous. Yes. So if they're just next to you. You could just get through them all and destroy your appetite and your your um you know ruin the next meal. It's dangerous, yeah. Which is why I keep them in the kitchen and I walk into the kitchen, open yeah. the cupboard, yeah. and have a few. Exactly. So... Like biscuit, you know, you go into the kitchen, open the cupboard, open the biscuit tin, get the biscuit out, take Jeez. one, shut the shut the tin, shut the cupboard, leave yeah. the room, shut the door, go back to your room, eat it, and do the whole thing over again. Always. Why not? I like that. It's exercise in itself. It's brilliant. Absolutely. So I want to ask you about food identity and culture. You know, as a food writer and a restaurant critic, do you think the role of personal identity plays an important part in shaping cultural knowledge of understanding foods from different areas? I think you can probably overplay it. I mean, I think you, if you try and badge yourself with a specific identity linked to the sort of food you're eating, mm. then I think I don't really understand why you would do that, mm. why the ego would need that, because I think that personal identity is about hopefully um, being decent and fair and reasonable and understanding and diligent and 
forgiving and all the rest of it. And if you feel that the need to create an identity linked to what you're eating, then I think your sort of priorities are wrong. Now, having said that, the way that you eat, the way that you operate within the environment of food does yeah. tell people about you. Yeah. So um, I think it's a really interesting question because I think it's quite interesting the idea of you know looking at what someone's put on a conveyor belt in the supermarket mm. and analyzing what that says about that person, their lifestyle, um, their values, the things they can afford, how they're dealing with whatever economic issues they may have and their understanding of how you can shop and how you can improve the world by shopping better. Yeah. So I would say, I would look at it from the reverse angle of what someone eats can tell you about them, mm. but I would be worried if someone chose food and ate food specifically in order to badge themselves with a particular identity, which to yeah. me is slightly vacuous and egocentric. So the answer is, whatever your question was, uh, <laughs> you can tell a lot of a lot about what someone eats. You can tell a lot about a chef from the way they source food, cook food, present food. Yeah. Um, but it's a very sophisticated and multi-layered thing to unravel. So it's a definitely because I find that you know, for example, the UK is so open to foods from around different worlds because we travel a lot. So, for example, when you go, like, you know, growing up in Loughborough, a lot of Bangladeshi restaurants, but they never classed themselves as a Bangladeshi restaurant. They would call themselves an Indian restaurant. So technically you would be eating their food, but they would never, they wouldn't want to promote that they were from Bangladesh. So in that sense, I find that a lot of, you know, for example, the app, we travel to Thailand that we we have a lot of Thai food in the UK. We don't really travel to Bangladesh because we don't really know that we're eating Bangladeshi food because they kind of come under Indian food. So do you think if people knew they were eating Bangladeshi food, they'd be more open to traveling there as well and be more open to differentiating the link of Indian food and their food? I mean, I th any sense. yeah, no, sure. I think there's several things to say about that. Um, firstly, there is a view by a narrow minded section of people that Brexit uh, identified Britain as a, as a sort of inward looking country that had no interest in foreigners and external cultures and so on. You only have to look at the food culture that's available on. Yeah every high street up and up and down this country to see that um for better or worse and i would say obviously for better we are the most unbelievably warm and welcoming country when it comes to people's food yeah. now we might sniff at them as they cross over into our borders but when they open a restaurant we embrace them yeah. there is no country in the world and i say this having looked into it that can proudly say that a, in a provincial town like Loughborough, like Bedford, somewhere that you wouldn't maybe have flagged on a map of gastronomy across this country. Yeah. You can walk up and down those high streets and you'll see Italian, French, Chinese, Japanese even, Thai, yeah. Nepalese, um, various 
kinds of Indian, and that's a whole other Pandora's you know, <laughs> <laughs> discussed. And I think that that says a lot about our warmth towards um, exploring other other nations. Mm-hmm. We have a very varied and exciting appetite and palate in this country. Yeah. Um, now, that then leads on to um, another massive topic, which is the depiction of food mm-hmm. within those establishments up and down the high streets of this country. Yeah. Now, because the purists would look at some of those places and say, oh, yes, you say it's Japanese, you're saying it's Italian, you're saying it's Indian, but actually I'll go in there and these are um, bland, vague, poor representations, bastardizations of the true culture of those countries. Because I think you could argue very succinctly and successfully that there is no such thing as Italian food. There is regional Italian food. And you can say exactly the same for Chinese, Japanese, Indian food. You know, the the, the food of, of India is incredibly diverse. Yep. Southern Indian is vastly different from Northern Indian. The talis of Gujarat are vastly different from the the grills of Mumbai. You know, there's a, mm. a huge difference. Now, that's not to say that these restaurants opening is a is a bad thing because they still, uh, you know, excite our appetites. And the other thing is that when you look at when you look at the cycle of food, what happens is. There's, on the one hand, it goes from recipes become long and authentic to quick and short and inauthentic mm-hmm. to long and authentic again. You see this in cycles of cookbooks. Mm-hmm. Some chefs even indulge in this. So Jamie Oliver will do an authentic cookbook, then a year later he'll do a quick one, which is easy. And then he'll say, well, actually, you know, I want to do the real thing, so they're long again. These yeah. cycles go through publishing. It's quite amusing to watch. Yeah. And the same thing happens within, um, within the, the food culture. So the fact that there is a bland, so-called Bangladeshi culture of Indian food then enables people like Atul Kocha to open a restaurant mm. in London and say, all these places are bland, they're not a true representation of my country. I'm going to give you some dishes that are acutely from northern India, which can yeah. learn and teach you uh, uh, about the food that actually exists regionally in these countries. And mm-hmm. actually... Um, all of these conversations are joyful to have because they all enrich us. And yeah. we customers as diners just have the amazing choice to just to the opportunity just to go and eat in these places. But Definitely. it gives a chance to indulge in debate. And I think the bastardization of cuisine is such a hot topic. Mm. You can't patent a recipe. You can't copyright a recipe. So when Taco Bell started turning out what they said were Mexican tacos in the 1950s, and a Mexican can say that's nothing like a taco. Yeah. Is that a terrible thing? You know? So, um, you know, you dip your toe into the waters of these sort of cultural yeah. arguments, and you can get yourself tied up in knots. Definitely. But what you can also do is get yourself tied up into a wonderful plethora of dishes, a, a tarly, a amazing of food to eat. So. We are enriched by these debates. That's the great thing. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I think you put, you know, you said it quite rightly. You walk down the high street and you will find dishes or cuisines from all, like, all corners of the world, really. Because, you know, living in Spain, Spain is like Italy. It's very regional. You know, in Italy, there is no Domino's. They would not have it, you know. Um, but 
Spain in general, if you want pork, you have it in the south. You want beef, you go to the north. Central rabbit and um, deer meat or goat. And they're so proud of what they have. But living here, I do miss trying food from other parts of the world because it's so, they're so proud of what they produce. They don't want to be that open in other ethnicities of food. Which no, is a shame. I think if you, when you travel through Italy and you go to a specific restaurant, a specific region, you know, if you go to Turin and you have Agnolotti, you know, it's just mm. incredible, and 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 then you understand what it is. Yeah. And and when you when you taste the sort of the small and precious al dente little parcel of um, lamb mince, whatever they might have in it, and then you go to a a so-called Italian restaurant in some uh, in in outside Warminster in the UK, and you have what they say is agnolotti, and it's a big fat squelchy quagmire of overcooked pasta. Yeah, as I say, you know the 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 purists would say it's a crime. What it gives actually you is the opportunity to go to these places, and so their acute obsession. Yeah, it's so important that they cling on to that. Yeah, otherwise the world just becomes homogenous and boring. Definitely. And you know there is a the flip side is of course of of economics and the commercial reality of hospital of hospitality is that what is homogenous and dull mm-hmm. are the things that are produced cheaply and and in mass scale yeah generally probably not very good for you and obscure the true food culture yeah and we're you know <clears throat> we're pretty far down that road I'm afraid um, generally speaking um and. This, the tragedy of the advance of Western civilization is that countries like France are trying to follow us down that into mm-hmm. that quagmire. What you hope is that there'll be food obsessives who who want to discover the true nature of a cuisine and and then yeah. flourish in the independent sector. But of course, then okay. the independent sector grows, and then they grow two, three, then they sell that, and then that becomes a modern. But that's just the way it, it does. Works. It's life. It's cycle. It, it comes back around at some point, you know. So as a food critic and, you know, you're a judge of MasterChef and you've travelled the world, what cause, you know, what recipe needs to meet a certain criteria to mean or be considered authentic? But you know that, I mean, it's yeah, it's so hard to say that because to, to really pinpoint that, I mean, when the problem with travel is that it narrows the mind. Yeah. Because when you experience how sushi rice should be, when you go to Tokyo or Kyoto and you find the grottiest looking restaurant on some side street is the cleanest, has the smartest uh, mm-hmm. electric loo, um, has the most passionate chefs producing sushi rice and sashimi which is greater than anything you've ever had mm. in the west it kind of ruins you because then you realize that you know sushi rice needs to be the temperature of the hand that it's being yeah. created in, and that sashimi should be very far from being just brought out of the fridge it should be yeah. sliced fresh from a fish that hasn't spent too much time on ice or too much time out of the water mm. When you have the privilege of experiencing the cute freshness and the the brilliance of how you know, how how you slice a fish can can change its taste 
But the taste is affected by the skills of the knife in the hands of a great chef. But when you then go to Yo Sushi and you just have something that's on a conveyor belt and you shove it in your gob and it comes to another fridge, you're very disappointed. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of food snobbery that you get because you've had the real thing is it's a mm. terrible burden. <laughs> it is. It's, I think it's dangerous because I don't go back to the UK and have Spanish food because yeah. what is Spanish food in the UK? But I'm curious to go to Jose Pizarro's because he's brought Spanish food to London and I'm really excited to try, like, you know, his simple padron peppers and I'm like, yeah. a weakness, yeah. you know. These are like, people like Jose are legends. I mean, I'm a, yeah. wonderful that we have in this country chefs from across the world who have made this country their home. Yeah. And, you know, whether they're Irish chefs like Richard Corrigan, French mm -hmm. chefs, you know, like the, you know, the Rue brothers were and, and Michel Rouge Jr. now and people like mm -hmm. Jose Pizarro and Frenchmen like Claude Bossi and um, other great Mexican chefs, yeah. um, like the guy who runs Santa Remedio, you know, um, uh, Edson uh, Fuentes, I think his name is. Anyway, so many of these guys who made made their home here and also making a point of creating authentic food so yeah. um i think that great sushi great yeah. sushi um kaiseki cuisine as sampled in a little mm -hmm. uh, oven in kyoto when you when you see what it's supposed to be like when you mm -hmm. taste the real thing in the real environment it's very very special and a huge privilege to do that so i would say some of those japanese dishes that are you know uh made by the some of the greatest chefs in the world yeah, yeah. out in in japan that's lucky that's so i'm like just imagining it it feels amazing so so you've actually made me hungry um in most cultures you know food plays a significant role in family life and it varies from culture to culture from culture to culture what was the most challenging aspect of writing a history of a hundred um a history of food in a hundred recipes? And how did you incorporate those moments in history into colourful recipes? Well, that book was written, yeah, it was about 12 years ago now. And with my publisher, a great man called Ian McGregor, and um a researcher, Georgia Matchell, we sort of we made a plan. So we and I spent a lot of time in the British Library. Um, and the idea was that each chapter had to start with a recipe. Yeah. And that recipe would be a key moment in time that would tell a specific story and that mm. would move the story on. And it needs to be global as well. We did also some, we did some international editions as well. So there mm. were new chapters written that would be more focused on, let's say, South American cuisine, Asia, um, uh, stories that would, because it's, you know, we had to, we wanted to keep it to a hundred, but in order to be able to sell it overseas successfully, um, we needed to sort of slightly skew the book in various ways. So there were different versions of it <laughs> in nine languages. So it's, it's, that's, uh, financially, I wouldn't say it was a success, but I, but it's, I have on the shelf behind me all nine issues i think you can probably while well, you're looking at see me you can yeah. those the versions it's quite fun to see your book translated across the world into various different languages from russian to um 
Spanish and you know to Portuguese, etc., Brazil. But um, so uh, there was discussion about each recipe, mm. whether it was a recipe on the back of a cornflake packet in the nineteen thirties that told you about the advance of advertising. Yeah. It was a recipe discovered on a, a tomb in ancient Mesopotamia, modern Iraq, on the banks of the Tigris, written in um, ancient script. Um, every recipe, you know, I had to be able to argue for why that recipe was in the book and the ensuing chapter. So once we sort of made a vague plan, it was, you know, writing the challenge of writing a book is to write it <laughs> because it's yeah. like climbing a a hill it's like being in the highlands of scotland and you wanted to get on the top of a hill and you just sort of every you think you've reached the peak of a particular ridge or and you and, it, and then you see it's it's going up and further up ahead of you and it just seems never ending and it's a bit like that with a book you do twenty thousand words you're not even halfway thirty thousand forty thousand so as a journalist the challenge is always to keep keep going it's always difficult you know you have to you know, the, the most important thing about a book is to start writing it. You can spend a lot of time prevaricating. Unless you put down the words, nothing happens. So the challenges are physical and in and mental because it's just a huge slog. But um yeah, there was just lots of discussion, you know, to justify why each chapter would be in that book. And I think we got the balance, you know, on the whole pretty, yeah. pretty right. I really liked it. It's one of the best books I bought for myself. So hmm. Yeah, because I like food and travel. I love food. I specialize in food and history. For me, it was just like my Bible with other books. But yeah, I thought it was quite fascinating. I, I, I can't speak. Quite fascinating. So I spent a lot of time in the British Library, which is the most wonderful resource. Because what's great is there that you know you can you can get these very precious tomes and hold them. And um, when I was writing about people like Dennis Papa, who was a mm invented basically an early version of the pressure cooker several centuries ago and you could really feel the labor from his writings and his struggles mm -hmm. and he was a man who came up with this terrific invention that could alleviate poverty could preserve food etc etc it had so mm -hmm. many um facets it was such an extraordinary invention yet he sort of died in in poverty and was put in a pauper's grave um, you could really, like, you hold his book and you see the early <laughs> and you could really feel the emotion and the hard work of this man. Mm -hmm. And the British Library is somewhere that affords anyone to sit there and do that. Incredible staff. You pop mm -hmm. in some book and an hour or even a, maybe a day or so later, if it's a very precious book tucked away in some other library, just gets delivered and you can hold it, look mm -hmm. at it, notes and so on. So that was a, that was a, I think that was the, it's funny because, you know, when you're at university and you have to sort of study for exams, it's miserable sitting in libraries. Yeah. When you have the privilege of being paid to write a book and you can sit in the library and study again, yeah. engage in a sort of academic intellectual exercise, uh, it's very satisfying. Mm -hmm. It's very satisfying. Definitely. Because I feel like, you know, when I was doing some research about um, aphrodisiacs and Indian culture of food, um the british library a lot of the work i was doing a lot of the books are in the british library so i'm really curious to go to london to see these books because there were transcripts from the fourth century to the 14th century that have been you know translated and kept there so i think the british library is quite good at 
having a vast majority of like everything, just everything in there. It's, and, it's an extraordinary place. And, you know, when you go and work there, you have no excuse to work. You can't faff around. Whereas if yeah. you work for home, it's quite easy because you are doing this, you're, yeah. you know, you're doing that journey back and forth to the biscuit. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Okay. So, you know, when we talk about food, I feel it's an exploration of culture, you know, what we consume, how we acquire it, who prepares it, who's at the table, who eats it, you know, all of this is like a rich cultural base. And it's a true form of communication, which is through food. How true is this for you? Oh, completely. I've always found that, you know, food is the, the key, the doorway to culture. And as we sort of touched on at the beginning, what you eat, how you eat tells us so much about you. Someone who says they have no interest in food, to me, I find that fascinating because, again, that tells us a lot about them. Yeah. How a culture, um, you know, civilized itself through food, how people sit down and break bread, how generosity mm-hmm. is shared through food, the, the facets of, you know, the, the original definition of hospitality, which stretches back to you know, the old Latin Greek meaning of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when the Roman Empire was expanding, um, hospitality was was one of its sort of founding principles, and people were supposed to take those principles in the same way that they took the principles of underfloor heating and <clears throat> building walls and roads. Their ideas of currency, taxation. Um, you know, hospitality was was very much part of that. You know, it was. It was a sort of, it was basically a, a law that you didn't uh, disobey, you know, welcoming people into your house, into your town, your house, leaving food on the steps for strangers and so on. Yeah. I think in modern, the modern world's been sort of largely lost. And there was a time, you know, only a few decades ago where you could still travel across Europe with not, with no money in your pocket. Mm-hmm. If you read the works of English writers like Patrick Lee Fermor, who were able to travel right across Europe, with nothing but their their wits mm. about their ability to converse, their ability to pick up language. And there was an expectation, which I think is probably lost to a vast part of Europe, where you can turn up in a town or a village, knock on a door of a farmhouse, be fed, be looked after. And, um, you know, in return, you brought them your knowledge, your conversation, your interest in them. Mm. Now, knocks at the door you know we think they're a villain or a vagrant who's going to come to steal from us it's a terrible tragedy you know <laughs> you try doing it now let's see you're going to you know, be interesting yeah. to be a good documentary to try and go from land's end to John yeah. without a penny in your pocket we should try it <laughs> you know, just knocking on people's doors and you probably, you know, either get get threatened or have the police run or be given the same kind of crap pizza you know, from yeah. one end of the country to another. So it is absolutely intrinsic to your culture. And I think probably that if you analyse quite a lot of the dining habits of the British, it, uh, you'd be a little bit disappointed. But we are emerging in some areas, the independent sector, farmers' markets. Yeah independent yeah. coffee houses there is a fight back look mm-hmm. at the great our cheese industry for example 
I think we now produce more different cheeses than the French. Um, it's quite extraordinary. So mm. it's a multi-layered thing. You can't yeah. really make generalizations about it. But the one generalization you can make is that, yes, absolutely, yeah. you can stand about a culture and its people if you, if you can eat their food and hear them talk about it and watch them cook it. Definitely. You know, one of the things I do miss, you mentioned the cheese. Since Brexit, I can't get cheddar in Spain. Really? Which breaks my heart because I'm close to Melton Mowbray. Pork pies, cheddar, it's heart heartbreaking, like really heartbreaking. Who's, who's, who's stopping who from selling it? I think there's been no agreement as such yet. So we got Irish cheddar, but I would like British cheddar back because oh, a lot of the things we used to be able to get it. You've had a food smart policy. Brand. I know food policy. It's it's. Uh, hope it gets sorted soon. A lot of British stuff got well was stopped, which is unfortunate. Which I think is such a shame because I do miss it. And um, just the simple things like don't laugh, but Worcestershire sauce. Like I yeah. love it. I love it on cheese toast. Mm, so yummy. So you know, as a food writer, you're a critic, owner of the smallest wine store, and a presenter more. What was that moment when you knew you wanted to delve into thing, all things food? Because just listening to you, I feel you're a storyteller and I get lost just listening to you because I find everything you're saying to me is, is quite fascinating and I can just have conversation with you for ages. So I receive that like, I'm like, wow, I want to ask you about that. <laughs> well, I'm a journalist who ended up writing about food, really. I think okay. I always wanted to be a writer. Okay. And my my um, family are a family of writers. Yeah. My great aunt was a famous poet. My grandfather wrote over 130 books. So there's a bit of scribbling going on. Whether it goes into my genes, I don't know. I'm sitting in a room full of books, many of whom have been written by my ancestors, and I'm very proud of that. So I was a writer, wanted to be a writer, journalist, and I... There was no deliberate aim to go into the food world, mm -hmm. to write about food. Um, I was in about 1999. Um, there was a job going as deputy editor of a magazine called Waitrose Food Illustrated. I'd yeah. never heard of it. I can't remember what I was doing at the time. I think I was sort of languishing as a freelance, mm -hmm. being features editor of a magazine called Woman's Journal, where I kind of turned up by mistake didn't know what I was talking about. I was in my early 20s, and the main subjects were how women, how divorced women <laughs> again in their 40s and things like that. I was absolutely, I was sort of thinking, what am I doing here? Anyway, um, I kind of, I'd been at the, the Express for a few years. Anyway, I left, and I was, anyway, so I was thinking, what was I going to do next? And a friend of mine, who is a great food writer, introduced me to the editor of that, then editor of that magazine. Mm -hmm. And I got the job as deputy, and it was a very odd interview because she was a lovely woman called Katie Hillier, slightly bonkers. She came and met me in my flat in Notting Hill and said, so uh, tell me about, you know, your love of food. And I said, well, I eat. And uh, she then sort of cut off and talked to me for about two hours and <laughs> yet she didn't get a word in. Wow. And uh, so as far as I knew, and as far as I was concerned, the only reason, anything she knew about me was that I ate. Anyway, she, I got the job on the strength that I ate, and I was obviously a good listener. 
So I became deputy editor of the magazine. And then a few years later, she quit. And I realized this was quite a key moment because I could either become editor or lose an editor, languish as someone else's deputy, and then probably try and rummage around to get a job somewhere else. So I, I'd realized in those few years when I was deputizing that food was an incredible subject for a journalist mm-hmm. because food, you know, I'd worked on newspapers and tabloids, on diary columns, various papers, and I understood that food was about culture, economics, history, uh, poverty, sadness, happiness, entertainment, love, health. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there was, you know, drinks. I mean, it is the most mm-hmm. extraordinary it. So it occurred to me that if I got this job, that I had this amazing opportunity to bring great stories to what I thought I could make a really great magazine and make it even better, make it greater. So I think it's the first a key moment in my life where I suddenly realized there was this path and I, mm. there was one was failure by not getting in it and the other one I just had to get. So I fought for this job with every fiber of my being and thankfully got it just. I think they were a bit reluctant because they thought, God, you know, you're inexperienced. You have no experience of managing yeah. people, blah, blah, blah. But I had a lot of ideas. So I got the job as editor of Waitress Food Illustrated. And that was in about 2003. And I sort of okay. stayed there for the best two decades or about 16, 17 years. And over that time, made that magazine a really great, well-known title. Now, it was a magazine associated with a supermarket but i think we created something greater than that mm-hmm. it's proved how brilliant design great illustration wonderful writing and all these sorts of things could be brought to the table of this magazine so you know as a child i never really was interested in food never really ate anything i was sort of shriveled up little pile of bones really uh you know very pale and not interested in eating anything apart from my mother's chocolate cake so I think I would have surprised anyone who knew me as a child that I ended up writing about food because it never mm. seemed to be a that I showed any interest in. Mm. But journalistically, I got this bug and I realized here's an amazing subject. Yeah. And I feel lucky that I landed on that because I found found a subject that I could tackle. And it's an endless mm. journey discovery. You know, yeah. you're never going to learn enough or know enough. Um, you know, whether it's the world of wine or the history, yeah. politics, it's just Everything. the most it's just the most amazing subject. No, absolutely. I feel like, you know, when we think of food through the cultures, we will think, you know, the general person will say, Oh, American food, diner food, hamburgers, Italian pasta, French croissants. But each community kind of reflects on their own history what when you think of british food what national national cuisine do you think of well i think of roast beef i think of the sunday lunch mm. as being indicative of what we are i mean people say that it's curry people say it's chicken tikka masala i still think that in spite of the plant-based assault mm. um that we that we have seen um, I still think that beef uh, roast mm. has to be our national dish. That's the dish that I love to cook on a Sunday. So I think I think a Sunday roast and 
everything that, that accompanies it yeah. is our sort of proud national dish. The roast potatoes and the veg, the seasonal veg, yeah. the pudding, the crumble. And again, these are sort of quite humble dishes, really. You know, I mean, yeah. most people can, you know, scrump for an apple, find some flour and a bit of sugar. It's not difficult making a crumble. I just think you need a few grape nuts for a little added crumb. <laughs> They're not compulsory. Um, so, yeah, I think Sunday lunches are a lunch. Yeah, and I think also, you know, there's so much so much variety, whether you want to go for pork or lamb or beef or just roasted chicken. Uh, that, to me, is can be never beaten. And, you know, one's always on a quest to pr- produce mm-hmm. a better, crunchy version. You know, to gravy, to have a big old pile of horseradish, Dijon mustard, which I'm obsessed with, rather than English. Although actually, Trucklements do an amazing English mustard. That's what I have at home. I get Trucklements here, actually. Love it. Mint sauce. Wonderful brand. Crabberry sauce. Oh All the stuff I'm roasting now. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Um, yes. Curious. I think of a Lancashire hot pot. Right. Yorkshire pudding. Yeah, I love all this Stevie dumplingy type of food as well. Mm. Oh, I'm so hungry. Anyway, so when you think of the proverb "You are what you eat," it epitomizes it epitomizes idea of food and identity, and the process of choosing and eating food, which encompasses social, economic, cultural factors. But what was the most fascinating piece of food history? that you discovered while you were writing one of your books? Oh, goodness me. Sorry, uh, difficult question. <laughs> that is a really hard question. Um, I think there's a, one of the books I'm most proud of writing is the book I wrote about Lord Walton, who's the Minister mm-hmm. of Food in the Second World War. Yeah. And I think that discovering the ingenuity of the British mm-hmm. public, how we survived, rationing um you know if i think about i mean there were there were so many examples of ingenuity at the kind of extreme wealthy end there were people coming to hotels in london from their estates aristocrats mm-hmm. from their piles in northumberland checking into london and they would bring in their suitcases haunches of venison and game mm-hmm. that they were chefs to cook most wonderful idea of that the 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 dish Walton pie which is this fairly bland food but just signifies the the ability to cope of a british nation under colossal pressure pressure mm-hmm. maybe it was uh, a dish that wouldn't you know have much appeal today i think our palates really are, are too excited that we wouldn't put up with the blandness of it although we could probably pour mm-hmm hot Jamaican sauce over it to sort of spice it up a bit. Um, so the the food that sustained us in the Second World War, I find in, incredible because it just leads you into the most extraordinary exploration as to how Britain was fed in the Second World War. Yeah. The stories of how the Ministry of Food in huge secrecy decamped to a little Welsh seaside town called Colwyn Bay, all those sorts of things. But then if I think about the history of food and some of the most 
kind of seminal dishes. Oh, uh, it's so difficult, isn't it? Maybe uh, Roly Lee's chicken and egg, chicken and goat's cheese mousse. Okay. Most extraordinary dish he created in the kind of late 80s. Developed from some of the things he'd learned at the Waterside Inn that signified the, the advance of British food. He was at the forefront, along with people like Simon Hopkinson and, and um, Sally Clark, of a, of a new British food revolution that was built on the foundations of the Rue brothers, raising the bar of expectation in restaurants. And then the chefs who then trained under them went on to create British restaurants democratizing food mm. and um i would probably so yeah i'm thinking as i'm thinking out loud i mean I, there's two dishes that Rayleigh lee created in his career and he's still you know cooking chicken and goat's cheese mousse and also his um anchovy toast uh parmesan custard with anchovy toast simple dish using some foreign ingredients but presented as the most wonderful little creamy sort of eggy mixture oh my goodness me and i like the fact that a dish like that that appeared at i mean chicken to goat cheese mousse appeared at kensington place very important mm -hmm. restaurant of the 80s big dining room mm -hmm. it wasn't about poncy service mm -hmm. or cloths it was about noise and you know socializing and mm -hmm. gossip and so on um and then the Parmesan custard and anchovy toast that he created at Cafe Anglais in Bayswater, where he basically tore down the ceiling, ceiling of an old McDonald's and created this wonderful room. Um, and the idea of someone coming to the UK and eating a new British dish that was full of umami flavour. Mm -hmm. So I might plumb for those two. But then, you know, let's if you look back into, into history, some of those dishes that you find written on the old Babylon tablets, uh, Babylonian tablets, that now sit in some university in Yale or somewhere, written in, in uh, ancient Arcadian uh, script that everyone thought were mathematical formulae for years, and then they realized they were recipes for basically lamb stew. Um, but they were, they were so important that they were, they were written down. Mm -hmm. um, carved into stone um, and it just shows the importance of a simple stew that they had to be written down so anyway I'm waffling it's so difficult no but I love it I'm just sort of like <laughs> this is what I was saying before I can get lost just listening to you get, like, it's really my, nice a copy of my book behind and I can answer that question I guess. <laughs> Ellie, let me see let me look at my let me see what we've got here I mean I have to say actually one of the most exciting dishes of all time that I came across appears um, in uh, 1692. And the recipe was in a book written by an Italian called Antonio Latini. And it was tomato sauce in the Spanish style. And it was in a book called The Modern Steward, written by this man Latini, a Spanish-influenced sauce. And... This was the first time in history that a tomato was mentioned in a recipe. Okay. And I'd heard some rumour that it was in this book, and I found this book in the British Library. And I, you know, I looked and looked, and it's, oh, I mean, I was searching for ages and hours 
trying to decipher the old um, Naples script. And I finally came across the word uh, pomodoro, the apple of gold, you know, the old mm. word for, for, uh, for a tomato. And um, that was so important because it showed how the tomato, I mean, it, it had taken, a, you know, 200 years for the tomato to come over from South America. It was discovered by right. the great Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortez. This tomato that we couldn't live without now—it's mm. the—it's it's the base of some of the world's most famous dishes. You know, how do you make a pizza without tomato? How do you make a sauce without tomato? Yeah. What's interesting is that the tomato would have come <laughs> over back to Spain in the 15th century, um, along with things like turkeys and uh, gold and chocolate mm. yet people thought it was poisonous mm. tomato plant you know people might just rustle around look at the leaves and think it's dangerous and of course it's related to deadly nightshade but it was you know even even british horticulturalists were worried about tomatoes and right as, as early as the early 19th century in the 1800s mm. so it took a long time for the tomato to then sort of take hold um, so I would say I think we need to go for that tomato dish in 1692 cool. alright so just before we finish yeah. there's a few questions I want to ask you about yourself yeah, okay. was there ever a time you considered something other than being a writer or broadcaster you mentioned writing was you know kind of in your family and genes but would you would, if you had to choose something now would you do anything different Oh yeah, I'm constantly. I've always <laughs> hell it is I'm doing. Um, I'm fascinated by um, law and crime, and I I go and watch trials quite often at the Old Bailey. And uh, I think in another life I would have liked to train as a as a lawyer, being a barrister, criminal barrister. Mm-hmm. You know, when I go to the Old Bailey, and I sit in the court i just think god why am i wasting my time writing about food this is so much (laughs) it could be something like death by tomato (laughs) i just you know so uh i'm constantly wondering what what it is that i'm doing and why even now so uh i'm certainly not fixated on my own journey maybe it's not too late i've always wondered what the hell i was going to do and i'm still wondering so yeah i think criminal barrister would be quite interesting And um, I've always thought that you have an edgy sense of um, sensibility that separates you from other writers and critics. Where do you think that comes from? Well, I don't really know what you mean. I mean, um, an edgy sensibility. Yeah, like, so when you write something, there's a bit of sarcasm, a bit of humour and a bit of directness. And I find that's very hard to create when you do your writing. Where did you learn that from? Oh, I don't know, really. I suppose uh, it's all about trying to keep the reader from being, stop them from falling asleep. Mm. I think the job of, well, my job, my, my brief, the Telegraph, for example, is to be en- is to entertain. That was always it. Fairly yeah. simple when it comes to writing restaurant reviews. I think you have to try and bring to writing a balance of colour, directness, but not overdoing it. 
Mm-hmm. I think the writing has to be well balanced. Um, I've I've always been someone who, you know, particularly through school, got bored very easily. And I was quite happy staring out of the window as well. And sort of miss that now, the idea that we always we were always having to do stuff. And yeah, I'd love to be able to, I wish the wife, I wish the world's wife would just shut down. I could just stare into space <laughs> like I used to. <laughs> Nine or ten years old, just sitting in my bedroom in little cottages in Oxfordshire, just staring out to the fields, living in a kind of constant fantasy. Um, so I suppose that, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm ultimately a sort of stupid person, so I suppose there's an anarchic self-destruct <laughs> mechanism in me which makes me do stupid, say stupid and write stupid things. So but when I'm writing, I probably try and describe things in ways that are colorful and emotional and have some sensibility and i think i'm an emotional person um so i suppose i just bring those things to life i mean i'm i'm just constantly interested in people mm-hmm. i think you know there's a magic in everybody everybody that i think you can uncover mystery yeah. everybody so i'm fascinated by people and uh so i don't know yeah i mean i just try and write things that will keep people awake really oh you do (laughs) i find it quite entertaining but do you think all of those just makes your voice unique because for example when you you know when i look at richard vines's work i know it's richard that's written it and when i read yours i'm like oh i know it's you that's written it but do you think that's what makes your voice so unique to I've no everybody idea. else. What for me to say? There's that. What's that new um, uh, robot thing? Someone was telling me about something GB or whatever is it? Uh, what's it called? There's this AI thing that's supposed okay. to, be able to imitate the way that you write. And someone said to me, I was doing some, I was doing an interview on some TV show the other day, and this guy, this girl, the director's woman, said, uh, "Oh yeah, yeah, these 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 new AI bots are brilliant at." Faking your writing, so I put in my name and I said, "Write, write about red wine in the in like William Sitwell." And it was just appalling. I thought, "God, I don't write like that." <laughs> I don't know. It, I, I like the idea that you think you can identify my writing from a piece. It's not deliberate. Um. So I'm I'm flattered. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> but I, that's why I think you got like an edgy sense of humour. Like I think it's. It's, it's sensitive and sensible, but also it's brilliant. So I think because I've been following you for years, I kind of get an understanding of like the way you write. So maybe it's that, but I think it, I think for me, it's what makes your voice unique. In well, it's industry. nice to hear that. But it, it's nice to hear that, but you know, it's not deliberate. I just write in a way that it's your I style, write. and um, I, I don't try and ape any style. I just try and bring the experience of journalism to my pieces i mean i think what's useful is that i spent some of my early journalistic career writing diary stories gossip stories Mm. and the great uh thing about that is that within 50 words 75 words even 30 words you have to have beginning and end of a story Mm. have to recount a story with color a quote setting and you've got to do it within a small little space that might just be an italic in a page and i think that is a skill we also we used to go to parties and dictate stuff down the line you know mm. so you'd, you'd you'd learn how to write literally from notes writing 
in your yeah. head rotating to the copy takers before there was the internet and you could just file a piece mm. on email or whatever or on the server. So I think that was a useful, useful skill to keep your writing tight, not too florid. Mm. But then also when you are, when you're spending, when you spend your life, as I do most of the time, writing 600 word, 800 word, 1200 mm-hmm. word, sometimes a 250 word burst, a 400 word piece. When you, that, when you then get a book to write, it is quite nice to be able to say to yourself, right, okay, I can let my writing breathe a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, my great uncle, a man called Osbert Sitwell, the most amazing gift of, as a writer, and he wrote these sentences that just went on for hours. You know? yeah. <laughs> I rather sort of end with that. Um, so I think it's quite nice when you're a writer that's endlessly constricted. Mm-hmm. Because that's 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 what papers and modern media needs. It's nice to be able to literally try and give yourself a bit of flow, a bit of space, mm-hmm. but still have the discipline to keep people awake and keep things concise. Well, well done. You do it. <laughs> okay, so my last question to you. What has been the most memorable part of your journey so far? In food writing. Yeah, food writing. Yeah. God, most memorable. I had a tussle with a vegan, lost me a job, sort of changed the career, changed the <laughs> changed the path of my life about three or four years ago. And I ended up being restaurant critic for the Telegraph. That was quite good. But I have to say, I think really, it was probably that break back in 1999 when I got the job as deputy editor of Waitrose mm-hmm. Philips Space, and that put me on the path to writing about food. Okay. And then after that, there's been lots of things, you know, the opportunity to write books, the opportunity to do master's class and all those things build. Yeah. To be able to sort of cement the bullshit over the years. Definitely. By writing books. I want to say thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on here today. Thanks, Alicia. Really fun. Thank you so much. You. Uh, so much to talk about and um, Definitely. really enjoyed chatting with you. And thanks for your interest in what I do. Thank it's you. Uh, thank really you.